Hi all, welcome to a special episode of the Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine. Uh, this episode is focused on refugee health. The Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine is a PubMed-indexed quarterly journal edited by the Yale Medical, Graduate, and Professional students and peer-reviewed by experts in the field of biology and medicine. I'm Wei, a third-year graduate student in microbiology. And I'm your co-host, Karthika, a second-year graduate student in biomedical engineering. Joining us today are two experts in the field of ret- refugee health, Dr. Camille Brown and Dr. Anire Anamale. Dr. Camille Brown is the director of the Yale Pediatric Refugee Clinic. In addition, she's an assistant clinical professor of pediatrics at the Yale School of Medicine. Dr. Anamale is the director of Yale Adult Refugee Clinic, as well as an associate professor of psychiatry. Um, so to start, can you each talk a bit about your career path and what your experiences are that informed your decision to work in your respective fields and with refugee populations? So I did not um, actually aspire to treat refugees. That was not how I started my career path. It was serendipitous, and I sort of fell into it. Um, When I uh, came here to work at Yale after finishing my uh, training in uh, primary care and psychiatry, um, a very enterprising resident in the residency program in internal medicine was just starting this clinic. And then we've developed it, and it has grown a lot over the years. But when it first started, I was just starting to work here, uh, and um, I was asked if I was interested in it, and I jumped at the idea because I've always wanted to work with sort of underserved indigent populations and also been very interested in some of the cultural manifestations of how people think about illnesses and how they present with illnesses and why you see some things more than others in some countries and in some cultures. And that's always been one of my interests, so this fit in neatly. Uh, but uh, why I mentioned that it was happens chances, you know, um, th- this can um, happen to anyone, and you know, you don't necessarily have to start out being an expert refugee provider. I mean, you can do this sort of any stage in your uh, career. But since I started it, I've been um, running this clinic for at this point uh, ten years. So I guess I also fell into it. Um, I. Um, have always been a primary care doctor and, and similarly had uh, always had an interest in um, underserved uh, populations. Um, I was living with my family in California working in primary care and then when we moved back for my husband's job here at Yale, um, I was interested in coming back into the academic world and um, working within a, um, a pediatric residency program to be able to do um, some more teaching with the, with the pediatric residents. Um, so I started working at the Yale Primary Care Center for Pediatrics and um, through uh, the connection between IRIS and the primary care center, uh, in a similar way, the pediatric refugee clinic had developed um, to support um, the healthcare uh, needs of the clients of IRIS. And um, the uh, the former director of the program, Dr. Schumacher, was leaving, and um, I said yes and stepped into the role. So it was a learning process um, coming through that. Um, and so the same way, I didn't expect it, but um, it has been a fabulous opportunity and a lot of learning. Could you maybe, for the audience who might not know, tell us a little bit about what, who are refugees and how are they different from maybe asylum seekers and migrants? So very briefly, refugees are uh, different from asylum seekers uh, in the sense that they have already fled their area of persecution and uh, have 
been registered by the United Nations Health Commissioner for Refugees, which is the UNHCR, and they have then uh, been potentially resettled in a third country, which is how uh, we see them. Asylum seekers have usually come to the U.S. or any other country as a student or for a a job or as a tourist, and then they're seeking asylum because they're afraid to go back. But the basic premise behind both groups is that they are uh, fleeing some uh, type of persecution, and uh, because they have a well-founded fear of this persecution turning into serious harm for them, uh, they are uh, qualified uh, to be registered as uh, refugees or asylum seekers. So just for a little bit of background for our audience, according to the World Health Organization, there are currently about 68 million people who have been forcibly displaced from their homes. Historically, the U.S. government selects and invites about 70,000 to resettle, and this has decreased significantly in recent years. Um, and so currently in 2019, this is capped at 30,000, and it decreased again in 2020 and is now capped at 18,000. Um, so what are some of your thoughts on this, and has it had any effects on your perspective as a healthcare provider um, and as an advocate of refugees? Sure. Um, as you just said, the cap has been steadily decreasing in the last two or three years, but it was actually increasing prior to that, where we had gone up to a total of 110,000 every year, uh, but that was uh, before uh, the central administration changed. So we have to see how the future year goes, but this is the lowest it has ever been since the U.S. formally started a refugee resettlement program in 1980. As healthcare providers uh, living in the U.S., we, of course, see the people who already come here as refugees, but we do know both anecdotally and from reports from other places that there are many refugees in limbo who are waiting at camps or in other places that they have fled to seeking medical care. So from a health point of view, definitely uh, that's a barrier to them seeking health if they're not able to be resettled. Uh, keep in mind, though, that even when we were at our highest point of resettlement, that's still a fraction, like you said, of the 70 million refugees in the world. That's always something we should keep in the back of our mind. But I think what has happened in recent years uh, from an advocacy perspective is the U.S., I think, has lost its place as the world's leader in refugee resettlement uh, because of the rapid decline in numbers. In the past, we had the uh, uh, we, we could proudly say that uh, we were resettling more refugees than all other countries combined, and we no longer can say that. So you touched a little bit about this, but regardless of this decline, um, what is providing, as a healthcare provider, what does resettlement look like from that standpoint for a refugee? So resettlement um, is essentially offered to those refugees as a, a method of last resort. So of all the people who have fled their country's borders, which is technically necessary for a legal definition of a refugee, after fleeing, uh, the first objective of the United Nations is to repatriate them to their home country if the conflict is over and if it is safe to do so. 
If not, the second option is to then integrate them into their local community. For example, in recent years, many Syrians have come to Jordan and Lebanon, and the goal is if they cannot go back, then to integrate them into the local community. So resettlement is really offered to people for whom neither is an option. So it really applies to people who are the most persecuted or at least for whom there is most fear in staying or going back. And what resettlement means is then they are basically invited by this third country and over 60 countries participate in, a, in the resettlement program, though some countries take in very few refugees. Uh, but what it means for the refugees, then they are moved to this new host country and they are accepted as eventually permanent residents of that country. And so, of course, along with health, there are a lot of other things that go into it, like finding them housing, helping them find jobs, education, etc. So there's a lot of social things that go into a country deciding to do this. And each country is different in terms of how many refugees it takes and what types of support it offers. From the health standpoint, what are some kind of uh, post-resettlement stresses or what is the impact um, on the mental health of refugee populations? So I'll speak to the adults and Dr. Brown can then speak about the kids. Uh, So there are multiple levels of migration. So we traditionally have divided them into the pre-migration phase, the phase of actual migration and travel. Mm which for some refugees can be 10 or 15 years in a camp, but for some refugees it might just be a year or two. And then there's the post-migration phase, which is when they're trying to adjust to the new country. So the stresses start accumulating from the beginning of the conflict through all these phases. And traditionally, though we talk a lot about the trauma, the experience, that's only a part of the whole stress. Uh, I mean, Dr. Brown and I both see many, many, many stresses related to resettlement, which is because you're adjusting to a host country that may be completely new, that may not necessarily be the country you chose. You may be completely unfamiliar with the system in that country and with the language used in that country. Um, So I would broadly categorize the sources of stress for refugees as the prior trauma, which, if present, can definitely exacerbate the post-migration stressors, but then also a a huge part is the post-migration stress. So Traditionally, we talk a lot about post-traumatic stress disorder in adults, but there are, I think, not uh, majority of the refugees actually don't necessarily have that as a diagnosis, but they have a lot of other stresses uh, related to these social problems, uh, including for many people starting completely from scratch with no money and uh, completely not being able to use their prior educational level um, to work in this country, and they have to work at basically much lower skill levels. I mean, these are just a couple examples uh, of the stresses, but how it manifests is not just PTSD, but various types of depressive anxiety disorders. And sometimes it might not be a full-blown disorder, but just several symptoms of distress that we routinely see. And I think uh, unique to children um, can be the added stresses of um, learning a new culture and integrating a new culture and um, 
uh, being uh, stuck a little bit between the the culture of their family where they came from and their expectations of integrating and uh, becoming a part of a new culture. Um, some of this we see is with language acquisition that children will um, learn to speak the language uh, before their parents and can get be put in the role as becoming the translator for the families in um, taking care of uh, kind of more adult business interactions or um, interpreting interactions um, and putting them in a stressful relationship with their parents of still being the child but then actually having to play some some adult roles. Um, it can also be a struggle for children as they adjust trying to assimilate into the new American culture and then also having the expectations at home of um, continuing the roles of um, their, the culture from kind of the cultural and their family norms from um, their country of origin. Um, and especially as uh, our children go through adolescence, there can be um, some pull and difficulties uh, with, with that. Um, and then for children, it's assimilation into uh, a new school, getting the supports that they may need for English as a second language. Um, a lot of our children um, have come with um, interruptions with their schooling. Um, and so um, also some of the... Um, the pre-resettlement um, stresses uh, may have affected their developmental levels and so um, needing to have extra supports at school um, and then some of the underlying discrimination or bias or, or bullying at the school can also be um, uh, a potential source of, of added stresses. Um, I also uh, point out that um, there's uh, a lot of these families um, will be very isolated here, um, and that can be a stress. And also, they will have um, many times family members that they're worried about who may still be in the country in origin or their country of displacement. Um, and so there can be a lot of worries for these families about their family members who are still in areas of, of danger um, or have been resettled in different countries around the world. Um, and um, kind of some of the support systems for these children um, aren't actually here directly with them, but they are scattered around, around the globe. So I can imagine that, you know, with all these stressors uh, from a mental health standpoint, a physical health standpoint, and a social standpoint, um, refugees face unique stressors uh, once they migrate. Um, what sort of resources are in place uh, in order to help mitigate some of these challenges um, in terms of organizations, like community organizations, government organizations, uh, translators even? Uh, what are some of the most commonly utilized resources for, for mitigating these challenges? I think... Um Community uh, resources can really um, kind of show some of the differences when we were talking about the definition of refugee and how we apply that. Um, for our patients who come through the refugee clinic who have been designated and given refugee status, um, they come to the United States um, with a connection to a local resettlement agency. Uh, they come with the support of getting um, medical uh, medical insurance for adults eight months. For children in Connecticut, they get to have um, Husky insurance. Um, and so they have some support systems. This can be very different for um, children who are, and families who are coming in as um, immigrants or um, asylum seekers who have not been given uh, the, um, uh, I guess, the um, have not got the support of being an asylum seeker yet, and they will not have the same type of support systems as our families that are coming through um, the refugee, um, the resettlement program. Um, 
if you are coming through the refugee resettlement program, um, they, uh, the families are connected with a refugee resettlement agency. And coming into our refugee clinic, it tends to be a multidisciplinary clinic. Um, and so what that means is uh, through um, IRIS, which is Integrated Refugee and um, Immigration Services, our local New Haven resettlement agency, um, they will come with a connection through a healthcare coordinator who um, will help them with setting up their first appointments and some of the um, the health literacy education, learning the new healthcare system. Um, within our clinic, we have designated uh, pediatric providers who will see the patients, um, designated nurses who um, will help with our families and also really help with the with the health literacy. Um, we have connection with um, the Yale Child Study Center to have a a pediatric psychiatrist um, see the patients, and we also have connection with a neuropsychologist who can help do some evaluations with children that we're, we're worried about. Um, so it really is, as I said, a multidisciplinary team to be able to help support these families. Um, if uh, for families that we see in clinic who um, uh similar fleeing from a refugee situation but do not come into our clinic with refugee status, um, it is harder to find some of the, the uh, community supports. But within the, within the New Haven um, area, there's um, different uh, different community supports, Hunter, um, different programs. Um, and also within our clinic, we um, have support from amazing social worker and case managers to, to help support these families. So I just want to add to what uh, Dr. Brown summarized very well. Uh, the health care part of um, the payment, uh, excuse me, for the health care comes from uh, a federally funded source. Like Dr. Brown said, uh, when they come as part of the resettlement program, they do get uh, some sort of medical assistance for the first eight months of their stay in this country. And in most states, it takes the form of the local Medicaid. So that is at least one source of care, uh, which asylum seekers do not have, as Dr. Brown mentioned. And I also want to say that even though the refugee resettlement program is federally funded, the money per refugee is actually very small. The idea is uh, in the spirit of what this country usually stands for. Uh, that the refugees would become independent very quickly. Unfortunately, that's not reality. And that's why sometimes the success of resettlement depends heavily on the local agency. And our local agency that Dr. Brown mentioned, IRIS, has been uh, quite successful and entrepreneurial in finding different agencies and funding sources. And so they're able to support the refugees much more than many other resettlement agencies across the country. But the point also sort of I wanted to emphasize from what both of us are saying is, um, you know, a lot of it is really like social services, even for health, uh, that we really need. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, some of it, um, you know, we can do with the federal assistance, but a lot of it we need outside support. So just going off of that, um, how are you able to ensure that these social services or even the healthcare that is provided is culturally appropriate? Um, and also, is there a good reception towards the health care that is being provided in the States um, for people that are coming from other cultures and other countries? So I think 
uh, it depends, again, heavily on where the resettlement occurs. I think we are fairly lucky to be living in Connecticut and in New Haven, which in many ways is quite receptive uh, to immigrants and refugees uh, compared to many other parts of the country. Uh, in terms of providing culturally appropriate care, again, from a health perspective, I mean, that often needs some additional training, mm-hmm. um, which is why Dr. Brown and I, we train uh, residents and students in the clinic uh, to learn this as they are training. Um, and, you know, we could do more development of physicians and other faculty attendings uh, to make this happen. Uh, but cultural appropriateness is something that is becoming a bigger part of medicine, even outside of refugee care. So I think people are a little bit more sensitive to that. Uh, The biggest practical barrier that we find is just finding interpreter resources, uh, because to be truly culturally appropriate, you have to be able to communicate effectively with the person sitting across from you. And uh, interpreter services are not, unfortunately, something that's particularly well-funded. Uh, legally in this country, if you receive any federal assistance in your programs, you are required to provide language services. But when that's translated into practical um, utilitarian terms, uh, it means that the clinics cannot turn somebody away because of language reasons, but they're not necessarily giving the providers an extra time with the interpreter or even providing necessarily a good qualified interpreter. Mm-hmm. It may just be some minimal interpreting service to fulfill requirements. And in general, in my experience, I've found that nobody says they don't want to care for refugees, but I think most people mean well and want to do it. But again, it's hard for them to pay out of pocket for an interpreter service if they're a private agency or even if they're a public agency, uh, you know, finding that extra time to accommodate people when there is already so much scarcity and need for help in the population of New Haven outside of the refugees. Um, could you guys give some examples of what culturally appropriate care looks like, maybe from your own experience? Um, what do you try to emphasize when you train residents and, and like future physicians in working with refugee populations? One of the practical things uh, which I alluded to earlier is how to use interpreters effectively. I mean, that in itself is a skill if you've never done that before. Um, sort of knowing very practical things like you're still talking to the patient and not the interpreter, and you're talking directly to the patient use, using uh, first-person terms and not for example, telling the interpreter, can you tell the patient this? No, you're telling the patient X, Y, Z, and the interpreter is just interpreting that. So very simple things like that. If you haven't done it, you may not know. So so we train them to do that. Uh, and there are other parts of interpreting, you know, uh, that's part of the training. And then also, you know, we teach uh, trainees that uh, communication styles are very different in different uh, countries and ethnic backgrounds. And you you cannot be culturally, quote, unquote, competent in everything because we see people from so many different parts of the world. It's more being culturally sensitive and be open and attuned to responding to their needs. Um, For example, um, you know, we see many people from Afghanistan. Recently, we've been seeing a lot of them. And uh, there is... Again, you can never generalize, but frequently we find that the female 
at least the adult females frequently prefer, uh, you know, female providers. We can't always accommodate that, but we try to. And their way of greeting, often we don't necessarily handshake with them because that's also an alien concept to them. And sometimes, depending on the person, again, it's very variable even within a country and within a background, but sometimes they don't even make eye contact. So you just have to be aware that those things might happen. And because they don't eye make eye contact doesn't mean that they're depressed or hostile, but that's just how they communicate with the world. Uh, those are just a couple examples. And one other thing that comes up um, with adults is uh, preventive care in terms of a lot of immunizations and uh, cancers. Um, Dr. Brown can speak to the kids better, but I think for in some ways the kids, many things are mandated. And it may be easier to convince parents, but for the adults, they often don't necessarily, they, they're very new to the idea of getting health care when they're not actually sick. Mm -hmm. So that's something also we try to uh, tell trainees to effectively communicate. That doesn't mean we're going to refuse care because they don't want certain things, but uh, ju just remembering that they, they view health care very differently. Um, I absolutely agree with Dr. Anamali. I, um I, I look at it and uh, talk with the with the trainees uh, a little bit about um, kind of um, learning uh, learning the culture the whole time. So we're never, as she said, we're never experts, um, as Dr. Anamali I said, and and uh, really cultural humility. So part of it is that we're learning the whole time. Um, we do see um, families and populations from um, across the globe, and I think uh, you can, as you see more and more families from a different culture, you will uh, learn more about their culture. But I also think it's really important to understand that every individual, every family is unique. Um, every family's uh, traditions and norms are different and their kind of um, their interpretation of their cultural uh, values can be different too. So never going in, uh, my training is never going in thinking that you know what they're thinking and what their expectations are is really trying to listen to the family and finding out from the, from the family. Um, having worked with amazing interpreters, um, some of our in-person interpreters through um, through Yale Hospital um, has really given um, me and, and and my trainees an understanding of uh, what a good interpreter is like. Um, and I think that then gives us the ability to, um, <clears throat> excuse me, understand when we have uh, poor interpreting going on and um, helping us actually um either um, kind of change to a different interpreter or being able to um, help lead an interpreter to help us uh, uh, interpret better. Um, I think things we can run into in different different cultures is the words that we're using as doctors, um, is some of the lingo we use cannot be uh, translated um, uh, correctly or interpreted correctly. Um, I think it teaches us to really learn what we're saying or what we're trying to say, um, to be able to use less words and more basic words. Um, and so we become more descriptive in what we're trying to say rather than just throwing out a diagnosis. Um, so it, it actually makes us become better communicators, learning how to um, to work with uh, with an interpreter. Um, uh, depending on um, uh, on the cultural uh, norms, I, I once again agree a lot with kind of gender roles and understanding that. Um, and we also try, if we can, um, have uh, similar genders between providers and patients, but that often is is uh, 
very difficult. It's uh, we can't we can't change around uh, schedules to always be able to comply with that. But I think is is understanding that and being able to um, work with the patient to make them feel as the most comfortable. Um, and I also think is, you know, we should be curious is finding out a little bit about the expectations um, that the that the families have, um, what their understanding is. A lot of it is good. A lot of um, it is going to be education for ourselves as providers, but also we do a lot of health education um, for our families. It's a brand new healthcare system that they are navigating. Um, and it is really our role to continue to educate and repeat things um, and help them with their learning um, so they can be actually successful within the healthcare system. Um, and so we, we definitely become um, educators as well as providers. Dr. Anomaly, you uh, talked about how in adult populations, you see that there's the, in some cultures, you know, you don't go to the doctor unless you're sick or you see something that's evident. In terms of mental health, and we covered some of the mental health uh, challenges that are evident, and this is very common in many communities, not just refugee populations. It's not really considered a disease or something you seek help for. Um, specifically for refugee adults, do you see this, a similar situation? How do you kind of educate them that this is or may be a serious problem and how they can find help and get services for that. So I get asked that question and different people call it different things and it's often couched under stigma mm-hmm. and whether you know people from other countries have more stigma than what we see here. And in my experience, I mean, that's definitely true. I think they're more reluctant to call something like a mental health thing or a mental health disorder. But on the other hand, I think some of it is actually sort of a matter of semantics and really what you call it. So when I talk to people, and that applies sometimes to people here too, depending on their background and their general approach to health, I will say something like, you know, it it seems like you're really struggling uh, to cope with some of the things that you've gone through, or it seems like after you moved here, sleep has been a big issue for you. And then I would sort of plan the treatment around that. I would not necessarily say, oh, by the way, you have PTSD or you have depression. I might say something like, we see a lot of people in your similar situation who go through similar things, but I wouldn't necessarily give it a name in that way. But... In spite of that, some refugees are extremely sensitive to this. And because I practice both a primary care and psychiatry, I definitely I had one patient I remember who was seeing me as a primary care provider in the clinic, which is why he was even willing to come in the first place. Uh, but he was extremely resistant to answering anything I was asking about his emotional state. Um, and he would not have even come to see me if I had seen him as part of a psychiatry visit. So we do have extremes like that. But we also have people who may have had uh, significant mental health problems before they came, even low levels of psychosis or, um, you know, low mood, which was significant enough that they were in treatment before. And they are actually quite open because I've already experienced it. They've already gotten some sort of treatment and they're okay with it. Uh, And then there's sort of a large group of people in between who 
are okay about talking about their stress. I mean, stress is a very loosely, commonly used word, which works well in a lot of situations. And they may be very acknowledging of the fact that they do have stress and that they need help. They don't necessarily want to call it mental health or want to take psychotropic medications, but they're willing to talk to you and receive some sort of help. So you negotiate with them as to what might work and what they're willing for. Um, but in my personal opinion, stigma, as we see it, is less of a problem than really access to resources, which is more of a problem when it comes to treating them. And do you see something similar in working with children, and especially kind of communicating that there might be some underlying mental health disorders in the children with the parents of um, the children as well? Dr. Brown? Sorry. Absolutely. And I think um, children, we also then have to see uh, see them in the context of the whole family. So um, parental mental health is also very important to our children's mental health, well-being and, and development. Um, we know that there's a high prevalence of mental health developmental um, uh, issues with children who've, uh, who come to us as, as refugees. Um, and it can be complicated with children because... Um, it's hard to tease out whether this is just an acute adjustment uh, situation, whether it's more of a chronic um, disorder, um, whether it's a developmental or an English as a second language uh, issue with uh, with kind of their behaviors, whether this is due to a delay in de development or whether it is a behavioral issue because of, uh, of maybe some mental health or some well-being. So um, it, we often have to try to tease out a little bit about um, what is what's causing these behaviors. Um, but very similarly, uh, uh, kind of talking about uh, stress and adjustment, um, sometimes we'll use anxiety, but how the body responds to the stress. Um, in children, we can see um, some somatization where we'll have children coming in with chronic abdominal pain or headaches or um, and sleep problems tend to, to be common and um, trying to work out um, medical versus um, this is more of a behavioral manifestation of um, a, a behavioral or a men mental health disorder. And so um, we talk a lot about stress and stress's effect on the bodies. Uh, I also think it depends a little bit on um, what type of the uh, what timing in the resettlement process. The beginning is a huge time of adjustment, and um, and that can cause a lot of disruption um, to um, to kind of behavior and um, well-being of children. Um, so we spend a lot of time at the beginning really trying to support the families within the resettlement. So safe housing, financial security, helping them, making sure that they feel comfortable, that they're sleeping, they're eating well, getting kids into, into school, trying to get the family connected within the community, the kids connected. Um, and so we may not be um, initially jumping down the road to what we would think of about as uh, as treatment for a mental health uh, or a behavioral health um, disorder as therapy. In, instead, it's really trying to work on successful resettlement because a lot of times, as the uh, as the resettlement um, continues, the families are become more financially stable, um, and the stress goes down within the whole family. Some sometimes we can see that uh, all the behavior, and mental health concerns improve. 
So you'd mentioned previously that you know mental health stressors could manifest as physical symptoms. Um, are there ways that mental and physical health treatment are integrated at the clinic, and what does that sort of look like? Um, so I'm being a little facetious when I say this, but I'm trained both as a primary care doc and a psychiatrist, so I'm kind of an integrated provider. Um, but that's not a sustainable model because, you know, there's only so many people that are actually trained uh, in these two different disciplines. So what we do try to do in clinic um, is uh, we do have uh, primary care residents who come and see the patients, do the initial health assessments, and then follow them longitudinally over time. But then we also have uh, psychiatry uh, fellows or uh, residents in training sometimes who are in the clinic at the same time and who are uh, basically sort of consulting with the primary care residents when there's a potential issue that comes up that the primary care resident does not know what to do with. And then the psychiatry trainee is there to like uh, talk through it with them and then see if any additional assessments are needed and then also to see potentially where they need to be triaged out to and where they could go for longitudinal care if they do need such care. Um, and Dr. Brown can, in a minute, speak to what they do in the pediatric clinic. Um, but oftentimes, as I was saying uh, earlier, uh, in terms of access to resources, we don't always have um, the capacity but we have enough trainees interested that we managed to have some sort of combined um, uh, method of assessment and uh, treatment planning uh, in the clinic. In general, I don't think in the refugee literature and in other clinics across the country, people have necessarily tried to make this an integrated model, but there is clear recognition that there is a need to integrate mental health better into primary care services. Uh, especially for refugees, even though that's true for the general population as well. And people are really trying to work on that. But I don't think there's any, like, established uh, models per se that, um, you know, we could uh, portray and uh, find consistent funding for. I think uh, in regards to children, especially uh, school-aged children, um we need more resources within the schooling system um, to be able to bring um, some more mental health uh, resources within actually the schooling system um, and to give them the supports where they're spending a majority majority of their day. Um, ultimately, they to be able to have um, social workers or trained mental health providers within the schools would be fantastic. We run into problems with um, uh, interpretation within the within the schools. So it, it may be that um, children, once they uh, have um, a strong enough uh, or acquired enough English, will start expressing um, some, um, you know, kind of some thoughts or some feelings or some memories and experiences that um, will be picked up at school and then they will be able to access the um, the mental health resources or the behavioral health resources at school. Um, however, at the beginning, um, the access to um, uh, appropriate interpreting services are not there within the, within the school department. So um, that is definitely an area of high need um, for all of our children coming here with English as a second language who've, who've had... Um, having adjustment or having had past traumatic experiences. Um, within our clinic, I think um, 
for children taking care of um, their development and well-being is very important. So we we will try to talk a lot about healthy nutrition and exercise and sleep and um, and routines um, and. Um, Another uh, part that we struggle struggle with uh, within uh, more isolated and displaced populations is uh, some of the parent-child dynamics, um, things that we would kind of define as, as discipline um, in in um, in pediatrics. Um, that a lot of times these families have been separated from their their um, sources of support, and um, a lot of times parenting skills will have been learned from their family members, from their mother in laws or their mothers and these families have been displaced away from these um, areas of education and support and so um, another thing we struggle with is is parental education um, especially for our, our children under 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 school age um, and trying to uh, integrate that a little bit into our clinic um, but timing is uh, we do not have enough time to do all of this within our clinic, and so we have uh, short short uh, appointment times. And so, being able to integrate kind of education and and therapy into our clinic is unfortunately we do as much as we can, but not possible right now. So that's really relying as best as we can about community with community resources. And are you are, do you see that um, in terms of longitudinal care that? Uh, people that need it are actually coming back and like getting more um, comfortable with the system and seeking more longitudinal care and like continuity of care and things like that? I think it's a process. Um, it is um, It is very new, as uh, Dr. Anamalia had uh, uh, mentioned before, is um, accessing health when you're health or healthcare when you're healthy is often a very novel um, experience for our families. And so the understanding that we actually see you back on a routine uh, uh, basis um, is is very is very new. Um, and so it um, will uh, take. Uh, time to educate them on, on this. And also when families uh, do not show up for appointments, um, it's our job then to reschedule and to bring them bring them back in. So I think having a lot more oversight on, on their care. Um, you know, with children, we do have um, we do have immunizations that are required. So we have set uh, set uh, touch points when we are seeing them in the clinic to be able to give them their immunizations and be able to do reminders about that. And then at the same time, we're doing a complete evaluation, looking at their development and and their their adjustment. Uh, but. Um, Having an appointment that is scheduled three months ahead of time or six months ahead of time is very unusual for these families. And so I think uh, clinics that are following these families need to work out a system to be able to remind these families or just being able to help support uh, bringing them bringing them back in um, to if they if they don't show up for for their visits. I think what adults do, I mean, it's a process, um, as Dr. Brown said, over time, I mean, once the acute stresses of resettlement uh, calm down, like maybe they find a job, even if it's not to their full potential, at least they're able to uh, financially sustain their families or, you know, kids, you know, of course, school would be an issue. But regardless of what the resettlement is, once they uh, settle down and learn the system a little bit, they are a little bit more willing to think about their health. Uh, and more willing to come for appointments and, you know, talk about uh, some of the health issues we want to discuss with them. 
and also in general, we know that overall mental distress does reduce over time, over a period of years. It's not just over a period of days to weeks. And that also helps in them, you know, taking a different approach uh, to their health and um, not necessarily think, looking at everything, you know, through the uh, lens of their internal distress. So, so I guess sort of the summary answer to what you're asking is, I mean, I think over time, it does improve as they integrate more and more into the system. And you'd mentioned previously that the government provides resources for refugees to access health care in the first eight months that they're here. But what does access to health care following those eight months look like? Um, it's variable. Uh, the idea is that they become financially independent and pay for their own health care, which absolutely does not happen. It very, very rare cases that refugees find jobs that actually then they get employee-sponsored insurance. Um, some of them go through the Affordable Care Act uh, marketplace. Uh, the resettlement agency staff workers help them navigate that and actually get health care you know, as somebody who has no income and who is not getting um, uh, any insurance. And also Connecticut, at least, um, uh, compared to other states, is actually quite generous in who it gives its Medicaid benefits to. So a lot of the refugees who come with children um, the parents also, as long as they have dependent children, the adults also continue to receive the Medicaid uh, benefits. And that's a little bit unfair for the refugees that come without children. Uh, but a large number of, of our refugees do come with families. And so they end up having that insurance for much longer while their kids are uh, growing up. So those are probably the major um, outcomes. And then also the local hospital, which is Yale New Haven Health, uh, does have a free care program that's not geared for refugees. That's for any indigent person who does not qualify for Medicaid, but at the same time cannot pay for their own health care. And some of our refugees uh, are older refugees who didn't have dependent children have signed up for the free care program. And in terms of social services, uh, what does access to those look like after eight months? Or I guess as as the refugees stay here for longer and longer? Um, so a lot of the social services, I think, are awful, like, often, uh, excuse me, like Dr. Brown said, community-based and volunteer anyway. Um, and, and actually, um, Dr. Brown can speak to the resources available for kids a little bit more, um, because in general, like, uh, clinics, pediatric clinics are better staffed with social work assistance and adult clinics are not. So we actually don't get a lot of help even initially. We The Medicaid pays for the direct health services, but for a lot of the other stuff, that even stuff like, uh, you know, um, maybe transportation or um, uh, transportation actually is a little bit different in the state. Medicaid recipients do get some assistance, but a lot of the other social services um, uh, that our people need to access, like housing services or legal services. There's not a lot even in the beginning, and we, you know, basically go to people who do this as a volunteer effort or pro bono, um, and we sort of keep doing that after the initial phase of resettlement is over. And like we mentioned earlier, IRIS has some intensive case management services in the beginning, uh, but they're also not able to continue that indefinitely, and 
you know, unfortunately, we do lose a lot of those services over time. Um, many refugees are at least integrated enough that they're able to take on some of that themselves, but some do not. And then it's just various combina- it's a combination and a mixture of volunteer effort and, um, you know, the refugees becoming more independent and some refugees not, you know, receiving the optimal services that they need. I think specifically for children, um, they're able to get on the the Connecticut-specific Medicaid Husky insurance through the age of 18. So we do not have the children losing their insurance after eight months. Um, They're eligible for the WIC services, which is the supplemental nutrition services um, from birth through age five. Um, And then after that, through the school, they're eligible for... um, schooling and and free lunch at the at the schooling um, or at the at their schools um, we we try to support the families as much as possible to utilize different community resources um, so uh, accessing food banks um, however um, talking a little bit about cultural cultural sensitivity is um, trying to find um, uh, you know food banks that are going to supply the type of foods that they will they will be using in their cooking um, uh, there are some. Uh, there's a, a diaper bank, some supports for um, for diapers, which um, are very very expensive for you know uh, for all families to be able to to buy. Um, and uh, a lot of um, a lot of these services, the case manager through Iris will help them to get in in contact um, with these services, and then. Um, a lot of times we step in um, after the uh, the support from Iris has uh, started to decrease to help once again um, have the families become more self-sufficient to be able to um, know how to use these services uh, services on these on their own and be able to how to apply or or get the get the services. So one thing that I think is kind of clear from everything you've shared is that we need more. Um, volunteers, social services, and funding to support um, refugee populations. So uh, could you speak a little bit about what some current efforts are in refugee advocacy? And in your opinion, what do you think is really important to prioritize in terms of advocacy? I think one of the advocacy efforts that I see more of lately and just because of sort of changes uh, politically as people have been, you know, arguing for bringing more refugees in and, you know, have been advocating at that level. Mm-hmm. Um, I think more locally, you know, Dr. Brown and I sort of almost advocate every day, okay. <laughs> even if it doesn't come <laughs> under the umbrella of advocacy. I mean, we're often like talking to the uh, head of the interpreter service at the hospital, like pleading for, you know, more in-person interpreter time or continuing the interpreter time that we do have, which, you know, is sometimes at risk of being cut off. Uh, I mean, that's sort of an advocacy in itself. Uh, And at one point, we tried to uh, contact, uh, actually, one of my medical students in the clinic tried to contact um, sort of other local corporations who might be willing to uh, pay just for interpreter time for those providers in the community who are willing to see patients but just don't have the interpreter services. There's sort of nothing came of it, um, but that was something we tried uh, for uh, to make happen a little while. Um, and then, um, you know, we're um, oftentimes we are 
like talking to pharmacists, trying to advocate for having a language interpreter in the pharmacy. And actually, legally, they're required to, but many pharmacies do not follow that. So we have some friendly pharmacies that we use, but uh, and we try to interface with the pharmacists in our hospital who are interested a little bit in refugee care. And through them, we try to get more volunteer pharmacy trainees to our clinics to you know, help educate the refugees. Uh, but we still have to then work with external pharmacies who are not part of our health system, uh, who may not you know, be providing the services they need in the language they need. So uh, that's something we sort of do on a continual basis. Um, and then um, there are other uh, you know, community advocacy efforts uh, Dr. Brown can probably talk a little bit about uh, the what we call the Sanctuary Kitchen. That's a local program, uh, you know, by community volunteers. But um, I'll just mention that some clinicians, in addition to provide clinical service, also like sort of write in the media and you know in the public domain, uh, just talking about personal experience treating refugees and how. Um, um, you know, we sort of need to be having more services. So that's another way sometimes clinicians uh, also advocate. Um, I agree. I think one thing we, we do from our clinic is, is going to be advocacy for our families within the schooling departments, getting the supports, um, the learning supports that our children um, who are in the refugee families are getting at schools, um, reaching out to the schools, being present at their um, individual education plans or trying to get them educational plans through the, through the schooling. And that can um, – that uh, often um, needs – more support than just families who don't speak English being able to work with the schools um, and educating families that they are able to meet with the schools. Um, so I think there's a lot of outreach that we will do uh, with with the schools. Um, once again, I think um, kind of working with the, you know, kind of local government, um, national government um, with advocacy about um, about uh, supporting uh, bringing in all immigrants, um, including uh, refugees, asylum seekers and um, kind of our, um, our, our undocumented children crossing the border and coming up um, uh, to America as well. So it's the advocacy really spreads out to um, to all type of immigrants um, coming to to America, and I really think you know, kind of building up, um, you know, some of the or trying to uh, um, educate the 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 public and everyone around us, um, either by uh, you know just the work that we do or um, or, or writing about um, uh, the positive stories and how amazing um, all of our immigrants are, that they're not a danger to um, to society, that they actually become pro productive members of society. And so really um, helping to to promote um, to promote um, keeping our doors open in, in America and actually being a welcoming um, a welcoming community for refugees. Yeah, so within our audience, we have both, you know, future clinicians as well as basic scientists. And what you guys have said is certainly relevant uh, to either people who are working within healthcare and outside of healthcare. Uh, but do you have any advice for students who are looking specifically to pursue sort of your line of work and to work to help alleviate some of these disparities that we see between refugee populations and people who were born here? I think there's sort of multiple levels sort of building off on what we said about advocacy. Uh, like, you know, I mean, you, the students and, you know, future leaders of society 
can do this at multiple levels. I mean, I briefly mentioned Sanctuary Kitchen, which is basically a group of community members who are helping refugees, uh, you know, have their own kitchen and a catering service, uh, which is, you know, in some sense... um, empowerment, but also advocacy. So just community member, you don't need any special training for this. You're basically bringing together a group of these people and helping them find employment. And, you know, the legal uh, service is one thing. I mean, depending on what training uh, the student is in now, you may or may not be going into the legal line, but that's where also you can really, like, help. Not just bring more people in, but... um, try to, by changing policy, have more resources available. You know, that's an important area. Um, If you're a healthcare provider, again, um, you know, you could, depending on where you live, which part of the country you're going to be in, you could volunteer services to local organizations. If you're entrepreneurial and you have, uh, you know, organization building skills, you could build your own clinic for refugees. You know, we have student-run free clinics here, and, you know, you could have student-run free clinics for refugees too. Uh, that that requires a different type of skill set, but depending on uh, sort of your inclination, uh, you could uh, do that too. Uh, for those who are currently sort of undergraduates or graduate students, um, we get a lot of requests for volunteers. Uh, it's sometimes difficult to know how to place them within a healthcare setting because, as has been obvious, I think, in the last hour, like we need a lot of external services, not necessarily the direct healthcare services. Um, so anything you can do to, you know, maybe bring more um, interpreter services together or organize other um, uh, events for refugees. Uh, I know the undergraduate school has some programs to help refugees. And I believe a group of them actually do some uh, one-on-one tutoring for refugee children in school. You know, that's another thing if you're still a student that you could do. I've even had high school students asking to volunteer and I've sort of told them, you know, more to do maybe in the fundraising range, you know, at that sort of level of skill and age, maybe that's where you could really uh contribute more. So so I think there's many different ways uh, to help this population. Um, and it can range from just individual, like, community volunteering to, like, you know, advocating at the government level. There, there's a wide range. Dr. Brown, would you like to add to that? Or? <laughs> I think uh, that really... Okay encompassed most uh, most things I think you know kind of um, volunteering without within the community um, uh, specifically for children as summer programs for children um, we uh, I know that the IRS our local resettlement agency will have have a summer program it's important that the children continue with their um, with their English as a second language education um, and also um, getting involved in community activities is really uh, beneficial for the adjustment and the resettlement pro- process. So um, organizing and working with soccer teams, I think the um, I think the tutoring is is very, very important both for the adult and for um, and for uh, the young adults and children. Um, and so uh, there's 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 many options within within the community. With that, um, it's about time to wrap up. I'd like to thank Dr. Brown and Dr. Anomaly once again uh, for taking your time to come speak with us and sharing your experience and knowledge. Um, I can definitely say I learned a lot from this one conversation. Uh, and to the audience, thank you for tuning in into this episode of the Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine podcast. 
Thank you to the Yale School of Medicine for being a home for YJBM and the podcast. Thank you to the Yale Broadcast Center for helping with recording, editing, and publishing our podcast, and to the YJBM editorial board for supporting this effort. The editors-in-chief of YJBM are Amelia Hallworth and Devin Washi, and the podcast coordinator of YJBM is Kelsey Gassell. For more information on YJBM and our podcast, please visit our website, medicine.yale.edu backslash YJBM. Be sure to check out our journal by searching Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine at pubmed.com. You can also contact us by email at yjbm at yale.edu or on Twitter. We'd love to get your feedback and questions, so feel free to send us your thoughts via email. If you enjoyed our podcast, make sure to share our podcast on SoundCloud or Apple's podcast app. See you for the next installment of the YJBM podcast.